Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today on the podcast, we are going to tackle a persistent stereotype targeted toward Latina women. And that is of the spicy Latina. That's right. And this is kind of jumping off of uh, an episode we did previously on the exoticization of women of color. The fact that a lot of women of color get called exotic, their exotic beauty, all this and that, and how so many people who are not women of color consider it a compliment. No, I'm complimenting you. And so much of the feedback that we received from listeners was saying, hey, thanks for talking about it, because I just feel like somebody's comparing me to an animal. Yeah. And one thing that we heard a lot from Latina listeners is about how they will be called spicy or their hot tamales or their mamacitas. Mm-hmm. They're always highly sexualized under this spicy umbrella and, and also kind of put into this monolithic box of all Latinas being curvaceous, tan-skinned with long, wavy hair. They cook a lot of spicy food and they also, you know, speak English with a thick accent and above all, again and again, they're spicy. They're often described in terms of food. Right. And I thought one columnist put it really well, Shantiana Ledden at the Feminist Wire talked about this whole spicy Latina stereotype and what it means and that a lot of people, and this is not just her, a lot of these columnists talking about this issue were saying, you know, somebody might not even realize my heritage or my background, but as soon as they find out that I'm Latina, they make all of these really gross, weird, uh, inappropriate assumptions about me and the bedroom. And she just says flat out, look, I am not your spicy Latina. Yeah, she goes on to say, quote, so when people tell me I must be a spitfire or a freaky girl in bed because I'm Hispanic, I'm not at all flattered. They're working on stereotypes created long ago to subordinate women of color and cast them as the inferior other. And there were so many other columnists of all sorts of Latina ethnicities who weighed in on this very topic across the Internet, all saying the same thing over and over and over again in terms of, hey, guess what? I'm not your spicy Latina. And also, can we please stop this stereotype? Right. And part of that is is body image. A lot of people expect because of amazing women like J-Lo. Or, or other women like that, they expect a certain figure from Latina women. And Raquel Reichert at Everyday Feminism talked about this curvy Latina stereotype being so damaging to young women because she says, look, okay, so maybe in our culture, we don't have the same pressure to be the size zero Kate Moss supermodel. Um, but we do have this pressure to look like Salma Hayek or to look like J-Lo with a tiny waist, a big behind and large breasts. Yeah, and uh, she also wrote about this over at Feminspire, uh, Riker did, and she said, The words used to describe Latina bodies like spicy, hot, juicy, figuratively reduce Latinas to food that's craved, salivated over, attained, devoured, and then flushed away. And I think jumping straight off of that whole idea of food, that image of a Latina woman being presented as something to be consumed, leads us right into uh, the 2014 Emmys. 
uh, during which, and I'm sure a lot of you are aware of this, during which Colombian-born actress Sofia Vergara of Modern Family, funny show, literally put on a pedestal and rotated for the audience as the president of the award show delivered a really dry speech, basically saying, here is this spicy Latina to look at as I give you this really dry, boring speech. Well, and it was supposed to be this kind of visual joke, too, because he was talking about the great strides that women on television had made. And there you have Sofia Vergara, who is, by the way, the highest paid woman in Hollywood right now, rotating on a pedestal. And when Vergara responded to people, especially on Twitter, saying, um, what's happening right now? Why is she on a pedestal? This isn't okay." She responded to it and said, hey, I think this is a sign of success for women because I can be funny, attractive, sexy, and also make fun of myself. But at the same time, it still is indicative of a broader problem because there was a tweet that you found, right, Caroline, from Mm -hmm. one of the founders of the Misrepresentation Project that sort of hammers at home. Yeah, okay, because, I mean, I, I I see Vergara's point, absolutely, that, you know, hey, I can be all of these things. I am multifaceted. I am not just sexy or just funny or just smart or whatever. I can be all of these things in one person. And I get that. And, you know, a lot of people who were defending this uh, decision to put her on a rotating pedestal were saying, hey, she's in on the joke. It's funny. Let her be funny. Everybody needs to chill out. But um, Imran Siddiqui, who's one of the founding members like Kristen said, of the Representation Project, said or tweeted that Sofia Vergara is objectified on stage by the president of an award show that has only twice awarded a Latina woman with an acting award. I think that puts it in really good perspective that, okay, yes, a woman is obviously allowed to be all of these things for, for sure, but there's a, there's a history there and there's a lot of stereotypes that go back a very long way about Latinas. Yeah, so... Let's go over a brief history of Latino stereotyping, because when you start to understand where we've come from and you see where we are today, it starts to crystallize why Sofia Vergara on a pedestal is not necessarily a sign of progress. Right. A lot of uh, racism, bad attitudes, stereotyping towards Latinos goes all the way back to the 19th century. Um, America is expanding westward. We are taking land. And in so doing, we are pushing people off of their land. And so it's in the mid-19th century that we have the Mexican-American War, which basically led to the U.S. taking over Texas, New Mexico, and part of what is now California. Yeah, and and this is all under the guise, in American sense, of this idea of manifest destiny, that this land is our land, (laughs) and we're going to take it from you, Native Americans and uh, Mexicans and whoever else really uh, is not of European descent who's going to get in our way. So after the Mexican-American War, from 1848 to 1855, you have the California Gold Rush. And with the California Gold Rush, there is also this intensifying anti-Mexican sentiment brewing, specifically to keep Mexican miners out of these gold mines. And so you have things like discriminatory tax policies being enacted to keep specifically Mexican and Spanish-speaking miners from the area. And there were even lynchings 
taking place. Right. And, you know, Kristen mentioned discriminatory tax policies. There were definitely policies put in place during this time regarding specifically people of Spanish speaking descent. And in 1855 in California, for instance, there was an anti-vagrancy statute known as the Greaser Act, which defined vagrant as, quote, all persons commonly known as greasers or the issue, meaning the descendants of Spanish and Indian blood who go armed and are not peaceable and quiet persons. And so this whole, quote unquote, greaser thing is part of larger negative stereotypes towards Spanish speaking people and natives of this area. This is also around the time that we get the the uh, stereotype of the lazy Mexican, the bandito which really arose as justifications for this discriminatory treatment because it's not pre-existing racism. And this applies to African-Americans, too, and slavery. It's not racism that leads to negative treatment or racism that leads to enslaving an entire population. It is racism that justifies the awful treatment of other human beings. Yeah, and, and similar kinds of things are being applied to Native Americans as well. In other words, like to justify this concept of manifest destiny, you have to at some point feel okay with the fact that you are, you know, pushing these people out of land that is, right. you know, that they were there first on. So the way these discriminatory attitudes and negative stereotypes transition onto the screen is that, you know, as this is going on in California, the film industry in the early 20th century, in the 1910s and 1920s, is starting to develop in the highly racially segregated Los Angeles, like white people and uh, Native Americans who were living there or uh, Mexicans would not be all living in the same area. It was highly segregated. But at the same time, off screen, there were plenty of Latino actors, directors, cinematographers and other people working on film sets. But the on screen portrayal of Latino characters was terrible. I mean, it was usually under the stereotype of the greaser or the Latin lover, which was actually popularized by uh, Rudolph Valentino, who was an Italian actor. Um, and then you have the dark lady or seductress. And Stephen Saranana Lampson, who's a documentary filmmaker who looked into uh, the contributions of Latinos in the silent film era, said Quote, in the typical greaser film, Latinas were depicted as the heathen seductress with little morals, physically aggressive, and with an insatiable sexual appetite. And so there are examples, uh, for instance, of the 1912 film Bronco Billy's Mexican Wife, and then the 1914 film Bronco Billy and the Greaser, in which I think it's in that one, in which the Mexican wife runs off and tries to marry someone else and is portrayed yet again as sexually insatiable and very devious. Right. So all in all, not very positive representations of, uh, well, just really anyone who's not white, honestly. And at this point, it's getting so bad that in 1922, the Mexican government actually banned any offensive movie along these lines. And Panama enacted a similar ban, actually. And uh, the U.S. film industry was supposed to sort of clean up its act But that obviously did not stop the stereotyping from happening. And what's kind of fascinating to see is how the stereotype evolves from 
this era when Mexicans in particular were only depicted as either you know lazy or they're criminals or again this the sort of uh, harlot type of character but then once you get to the 1930s with FDR as president and the good neighbor policy which effectively terminated the US occupation of Nicaragua and Haiti essentially FDR being like hey okay you know what let's let's be friends somehow you have this evolution of what's referred to as tropicalism and you see on film this transition of latinos and latin american depictions turning away from just being lazy ignorant criminals to it being this paradise but still full of these funny exotic locals they're just funny caroline because they speak english and in and in, in broken sentences and they enjoy you know wearing fruits on their heads right so at once it's paternalistic and totally diminishing entire groups of people at the same time that it is completely blurring any lines that exist between different cultures, countries, ethnicities, people of different heritages. Um, and so I, I, I think that this has continued through today. Absolutely. If you look at stereotypes that still exist, I think American audiences in particular, you know, I can't speak for audiences of other countries, but I mean, I still think that people from uh, South America, Latin America, they're all portrayed as being one giant monolithic group. Yeah, and this was something that uh, Isabel Molina Guzman in Angara in Valdivia wrote about in a paper called Brain, Brow, and Booty, Latina Iconosity in U.S. Popular Culture. They said, with the rise of tropicalism, it, quote, erases specificity and homogenizes all that is identified as Latin and Latino or Latina under the trope of tropicalism with attributes such as bright colors, rhythmic music and brown or olive skin comprising some of the most enduring stereotypes about Latinas, a stereotype best embodied by the excesses of Carmen Miranda. Yeah, Carmen Miranda is a really interesting character. She um, like she exists in my brain thanks to movies and cartoons I watched as a kid. I feel like she was in cartoons too, right? Like Bugs Bunny and stuff. Um, but she donned the exaggerated traditional costume of poor young girls from the Brazilian state of Bahia, uh, with her flowing dress and wearing a fruit laden turban. Uh, she was definitely, uh, beloved in the states for being Exotic. There's that word. Um, and really entertaining and funny. But she was deeply, deeply criticized at home for her depiction of what a Latina woman is. Yeah. If, if you're still not familiar with who she is, just think about uh, the Chiquita Banana lady. That essentially is Carmen Miranda's quintessential character. And all of this is going on with her singing about, you know, living in South America and wearing bananas on her head. Despite, I mean, just for one instance, the fact that there were, were these so-called banana republics created by the United Fruit Company, which is an American company that were ruinous to multiple Latin American nations. It's like facts like that. They're just swept under the rug. And we have Carmen Miranda tap dancing out saying, okay, I'm going to collapse all of this culture and the fact that this 
tire fruit industry actually ruined a lot of uh, situations for local people. And here's my song in which I talk about how colorful I am and I say everything in broken English, which, like you said, Caroline, when she retur- makes it big in the U.S. and then transitions into Hollywood, when she goes back to Brazil, people are not taking so kindly to her. It's kind of tragic in a way because she's figured out how to leverage, you know, this uh, exoticism, can mm-hmm. we say, for, you know, monetary gain, gain and success. But, you know, at the cost of losing her, you know, local fans. Right. Which actually makes me think about what we talked at the top of the podcast about, which is Sofia Vergara. Because, I mean, if you look at Carmen Miranda and Sofia Vergara, there are definite parallels. Um, Carmen Miranda herself was Hollywood's highest paid woman in 1945, much like Sofia Vergara is today. But Vergara is brought up in a lot of columns by Latina women, many of which we kind of touched on early in the podcast, mentioning that maybe this isn't the best depiction of what a Latina woman is or what Latina women are. Not that they are one monolithic group, but I think that's what they're arguing, that we're not all the whole spicy, sexy, boobalicious stereotype. Yeah. And while uh, personally, I enjoy Modern Family and I, you know, she's a funny character just in and of that self sort of in isolation. But it's startling to see how in order to reach the top of the Hollywood pay scale in 1945 and even today, it apparently still comes at the cost of lampooning and stereotyping an entire culture. Right. So this then leads us into prominent Latina stereotypes in film because uh, Vergara and Carmen Miranda would both go under the Mexican spitfire slash female clown. And this stereotype was actually first embodied not so much by Carmen Miranda, but by an earlier actress uh, named Lupe Velaz and was featured prominently in films such as, and pay attention to these titles, Hot Pepper in 1933, Strictly Dynamite, 1934, The Girl from Mexico in 1939, and Mexican Spitfire in 1939. Do we see any commonalities among all these titles? Lots of references to heat and spice and Spitfire. Well, yeah, we do. And one other woman who sort of embodied these stereotypes was Estelita Rodriguez, who her portrayal of the quote-unquote Cuban fireball was depicted in films like... Cuban Fireball in 1951, Havana Rose also in 1951, The Fabulous Senorita in 1952, and Tropical Heat Wave in 1952. And I mean, I feel like that name, specifically Tropical Heat Wave, plays very much into this whole tropicalism trope about like, it's a paradise. Look at our sexy, bodacious babes that exist in this tropical land. Yeah, and and it's usually, those kind of films are usually based around Anglo characters taking some kind of vacation to get away from the hustle and bustle of American life and coming to this paradise where they meet these, uh, you know, cute, fascinating and sometimes spicy locals who will then either propel a romance between the two, two white characters or teach them something about themselves and then they'll leave and everything is magical and perfect. And I mean, it should be said about these actresses too. Um, one, one thing that 
film historians point out is that Yes, we have these these particular women embodying these certain stereotypes, but you have to take it back a few levels and consider, well, what roles were really being offered at the time. And in some cases, there there were instances when they could subvert stereotypes, but it was, and apparently still is, as we'll talk about more, kind of challenging to do. Right. And we'll talk more about some of the Latina stereotypes in film when we come right back from a quick break. So listeners, we care so much about you folks that we are going to do you a solid and give you the chance to get free snacks. So drop the candy bar, drop your potato chips. They're not good for you. Do what Kristen and I do. Get natural, delicious snacks at naturebox.com. They've got zero artificial ingredients, zero trans fats, and zero high fructose corn syrup. You can even find snacks that are low in sugar and gluten-free. So in the afternoon slump when I'm hungry and irritable, here's what I do. I grab some pistachio power clusters from NatureBox or baked sweet potato fries or these salt and pepper lentil loops that are so good. They're so good. But they're also so good for you. And now Kristen and I want to give you the chance to try NatureBox for free with a sampler box featuring five of their most popular snacks. To start your free trial, go to naturebox.com slash momstuff. Stay full, stay strong, do what we do and start snacking smarter. Go to naturebox.com slash momstuff to get a free sampler box of delicious snacks. Oh, and you're welcome. And now back to the show. So one of the main features of the female clown is using comedy as a way to dampen their outward sexuality. They would they would be seen as super sexy, but they would be so funny as to not be uh, sort of eliminate themselves from being a love interest of the usually white male protagonists in these films. Or threatening. or th- Exactly, yes. Um, but when it comes to the harlot, or cantina girl, as the stereotype is sometimes referred to, there's no comedy about it. This stereotype is all about sex. This is essentially the female analog to the El Bandido stereotype of uh, Latinos in film. Right. She's dangerous, but not in the same way that the vamp, which we'll talk about in just a second, is dangerous. She is found in a lot of Western films. She's definitely more of a secondary character, uh, hot-tempered, and she's a slave to her passions. But when it comes to the vamp, as Caroline mentioned, this stereotype is essentially a couple steps up from the cantina girl, because not only is she... Presented in a very outwardly sexual way and is clearly sexually motivated, but the vamp uses her intellectual and devious sexual wiles to get what she wants. And this is also the character that you see uh, sort of pitting two male characters in films against themselves Mm -hmm. because she's so wily, but so sexual. She's irresistible, but so wily (laughs) and so spicy. So spicy. Um, and modern audiences would recognize the vamp in Eva Longoria's character in Desperate Housewives, who is married, but she has an affair, and then those two men go nuts over it and all this stuff. So Yeah, there was actually an entire paper that we read just looking at, I think it was called The Three Faces of Eva, just examining how Eva Longoria both 
on screen and somewhat off screen too, as we'll talk about in a minute, fits into these stereotypes. Um, but then sort of the, the opposite of the vamp is the faithful self-sacrificing senorita. This, uh, according to Gary D. Keller, this woman usually starts out good, but then goes bad by the middle of the film or TV show. And, and usually the character realizes she's gone wrong and is still willing, though, to protect her Anglo love interest by placing herself between him and whatever danger she has brought upon him. Mm. She was kind of this reminds me of one of the common women in video game tropes. That comes up of just the disposable woman who must be killed yeah. in order for the hero to prevail. Well, she, I mean, and she's double got to be killed if she used to be good. Oh, yeah. And then went bad. Yeah. Like she is like triple killed. But, okay, so moving forward today, surely it's better, right? Surely it's great and we all get along and everything is puppies and kittens. Okay, sure. I think we, there are plenty of film. There, there are some films. I don't want to say plenty. There are some films that reach beyond those four very rigid stereotypes. But representation is still lacking, glaringly lacking. Right. This is coming from a recent study by University of Southern California's Dr. Stacy Smith. And she looked at the top 100 performing films between 2007 and 2013 and found that Latino characters are really no surprise underrepresented and hyper sexualized. She found that only 4.9 percent of speaking characters in those years that she looked at were Hispanic. And so if you compare that to the 16.3% of the U.S. population that is Hispanic and the fact that 25% of theater tickets are purchased by Latino moviegoers, that's a pretty appalling number. And when it comes to Latinas on screen, they are the most likely to be partially or fully naked among all women. So hypersexualized, very much still happening. And even though, I mean, you do have... Latinas at the top of their game in Hollywood. I mean, we've already mentioned J-Lo, Eva Longoria, Sofia Vergara. You have Selma Hayek. We could keep going on and on. There are a number of Latina A-list stars, but there's still a lot of frustration with the perpetuation of these stereotyped portrayals. Um, and, and this was something that a question that was raised right at the launch of a show executive produced actually by Eva Longoria called Devious Maids, which is still running right now as of this podcast recording on Lifetime. Yeah, I have to say the first time I ever saw an ad for this show, my eyebrows raised to my hairline. I was I was incredibly surprised. I didn't know that it was at the time, didn't know that Eva Longoria was producing it. But but, you know, this is another thing like Sofia Vergara being on a pedestal and saying, hey, it's no big deal. Uh, Eva Longoria was saying, What's wrong with the spicy thing? You know, what's wrong with being a Latin lover? Why is that a bad stereotype? She said, I consider that a compliment. Same thing with Latinas always being cast as the sexy girl. It's a good thing. And I thought, okay, all right, okay. So she's beautiful and she's cool with the stereotype and that's fine. But I couldn't help thinking that what if that quote was about African-American women? You know, like, I, I feel like... What's wrong with always being the sassy black friend? Yeah. Well, what's well that what's wrong with always being the the stereotypical sassy black friend? But what if somebody were to say that about black women? Like, hey, what's wrong with always being sexy? 
just because, okay, there's nothing wrong with being sexy. Like in a vacuum, there is nothing wrong with being sexy or sexual. But when you, when you look at the fact that African American women all the way back to slavery were hypersexualized and considered savages with their sexuality, and you look at the same stereotypes that exist around Latina women, I mean, I think that and yeah, I'm saying this as a non-Hispanic person, as a non-Latina, but I feel like that's kind of a dangerous, a dangerous territory to tread. Well, if anything, it's undoubtedly limiting. Right. You know, it, it, Eva Longoria clearly has made an entire career and a successful one at that, playing this very specific type of character. But there are a lot of other Latina actresses out there who might want a shot at not just having to play right. a trophy wife. Yeah. Um, and w- just going back to the, the devious maids thing, it was just interesting that, that she executive produced this. And yes, it stars uh, all Latinas who are playing maids, but there were some people raising their eyebrows. <laughs> I don't know if their eyebrows went all the way up to their hairlines like Caroline's did, but some concern at the outset of the show, which, by the way, uh, w- was not something she just concocted out of her head. It's actually an Americanized version of a show that or- originated on Spanish language television, but they changed up the racial makeup of all the characters uh, which used to in its original incarnation it used to be all latinos playing from the wealthy down to the maids but now they changed it up so that i believe the uh, the wealthy people who have the maids are all white people and also the head writer was a white guy too so there were some people just wondering okay is this really going to be are we really going to see the stories of these women? Mm-hmm. Because uh, certainly, you know, just because it is about maids, it doesn't mean that important stories can't be told. Sure. But there were concerns over whether that representation would simply be repeating old stereotypes over and over again. Right. Or Which if is it a could legi- be meaningful. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a legitimate concern. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are also actresses out there who seem to have bucked stereotyped roles like uh, America Ferrara is one who um, comes up a lot in these kinds of conversations. And Selma Hayek also started her own production company partially to broaden the types of roles available to herself and to other Latinas. But what's interesting, too, is how there are a lot of A-list performers out there with Latino roots, but who don't want to be labeled Latina actresses, not because they're ashamed of their ethnicity, but precisely because they don't want to be pigeonholed and stereotyped because those stereotypes are so persistent. Those stereotypes that Eva Longoria apparently is, you know, totally fine with. Yeah. Well, the big one I think that comes up a lot is Jessica. She's referred to as Jessica. Don't call me Latina Alba. Yeah. She got a lot of flack for that. Like, I remember that if, if something from pop culture like that jumps out at me. It, it was a big deal. But other other actresses like Cameron Diaz, who is Cuban on her dad's side, Uma Thurman, who has a Mexican-born mother, which I had no idea about. But then again, why why would I really, honestly? Um, Sarah Ramirez, who plays uh, a character on Grey's Anatomy, is a quarter Mexican. And then Leah Michelle from Glee, who is both part Italian-American and part Spanish Sephardic Jewish. And Parks and Rec fans might already know that Aubrey Plaza is half Puerto Rican. And Gilmore Girls fans might know that Alexis Bledel, who plays Rory, has a Mexican mother and an Argentine father. 
And it's just, these kinds of lists are interesting because I think it was in an in- interview with Sarah Ramirez from Grey's Anatomy who was specifically asked about being always classified, like always making it on the X number of Latina actresses. You didn't know we're Latina. And she just kind of laughed it off and talked about how it, those kinds of things do nothing to improve the representation and just sort of that line that it seems like as actresses, they have to walk between like, okay, well, if I fully identify with this, then am I only going to get these kinds of roles or, you know, or well, what? I mean, I think in the case of Sarah Ramirez and her coworkers on Grey's Anatomy and other Shonda Rhimes shows are are doing really well in terms of representation because someone like Sarah Ramirez isn't the Latina character. You know, um, other characters on those shows aren't the black friend. You know, there I think Shonda Rhimes is providing some really great, well-rounded characters uh, and plot lines that don't focus on the race or ethnicity of her characters. And so I, I I did enjoy I did enjoy watching Grey's Anatomy at one point. Not so much anymore. I feel like it's jumped the shark. Sorry. But someone like Sarah Ramirez, I think uh, I, li- I like her a lot. Well, and I was surprised to learn, too, that this has been something um, that Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo, has had to fight as well, um, particularly when it came to the... I mean, I think it's probably the most feminist film in the Hollywood canon, The Wedding Planner. <laughs> um, her character is Italian-American, and her agent specifically fought for her to get that role, sort of to just show that, hey, she can she can do this. Whereas if you look at her in Made Manhattan, her character is specifically Latino, but it's just interesting to see these kinds of case studies, if you can call them that, of actresses actively seeking to play beyond what people want to pigeonhole them in based on their heritage. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's not like, you know, white actors have pretty much had the opportunity to play often whatever kind of ethnicity they want. Because you could say that that is often a privilege afforded to white actors of, yeah. Oh well, yeah. Go. You, you, what ethnicity are you? No, they don't get asked that at all. They're just put in that role. Yeah. Well, Daisy Hernandez at NPR was writing about the sexist depictions of Latina women, um, but she was writing about it from the perspective of the sexism that's happening on actual Spanish language shows, not just in American media. Um, and talks about how a lot of the women that are on shows on Spanish language television, like talk shows or whatever, variety shows, the man might be in a fancy suit that's, you know, just a normal suit. And the woman next to him will be in like a, a crop top and and short shorts. Yeah, she highlights particularly Sabato Gigante, which is in the Guinness Book of World Records, by the way, as the longest running variety show, which constantly features scantily clad women and also El Show de Fernando Hidalgo out of Miami. And sort of the point that she's the overall point she's making is, okay, here's the thing. It's not just American media fueling this spicy trope. Yeah. And she summed it up so well, in fact, that I'm going to read this rather long quote. She said, across culturas, borders and languages, entertainment industries profit from selling handpicked images of women's bodies. 
On English language television, the emphasis is on the rolling R's. On Spanish language television, it's on the smiles and the bailes. In both cases, women are reduced to their cuerpos, their hips, their rear ends, their senos. I suspect it will take many Latina women, not on screen, but rather controlling cash flows and camera crews and committing to social change to change TV land in both halves of America. Yeah, people like Salma Hayek is running her production company. Exactly. Exactly. So that's why, to end things on a positive note, it is great that we do have so many Latina stars, not only already in the A-list, but also on the rise. But this is also just, it touches on so many different aspects in terms of, yes, exoticizing women of color, and also, too, the importance of women in Hollywood in positions of power, Mm -hmm. because that's what it will take to change overall the portrayal of women on screen, which then trickles down to how we think about and treat women off screen. Absolutely. So with that, we want to hear from you, dear listeners. Uh, Latina's listening. We especially want to hear your thoughts on this. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast and message us on Facebook as well. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. Vanessa writes us about our cosplay episode. She says, I've been waiting for a cosplay episode since I first started listening. Well, she says, my sister and I have been making our own Halloween costumes since we were kids and have been cosplaying at conventions for about three years. We're not pros at it by any means, but we love repurposing old clothes or thrift shop finds for cosplay on the cheap. Neither of us has had any issues at a convention, thankfully, and one of our favorites, the Steampunk World's Fair in New Jersey, actually had a series of panels on treating all attendees with respect and courtesy and making the con feel like a safe space. However, one thing I have felt almost every year attending conventions is the dreaded walk to con. I know some people like to change once they reach the convention center, but we've always arrived in costume and have both been made to feel uncomfortable when using public transit, going out for food, prices at the con are crazy, or just walking home in costume away from the crowds of similarly costumed fans. It kind of dampens the excitement when you have to think about bringing a coat or cover-up in order to get there without being harassed. I'm sure some of the stares and comments are simply due to the novelty of seeing someone in costume on a day other than Halloween, but hey, we're in New York City. I'm sure the people commenting have seen stranger sights than us. Keep up the good work, and I'd love to hear your response and analysis of the men's rights movement, even though I'm sure it will be infuriating. Thank you for your letter and your request, Vanessa. Well, I've got a letter here from Amy, also in response to our episode on cosplay. And Amy is a Civil War reenactor. And she writes, I found it very interesting and was curious as to whether you came across anything in your research comparing or disassociating norms and trends in cosplay from historical reenacting. Some topics were very familiar in terms of accuracy of the costumes, dressing as the opposite sex or gender, and attitudes toward women in costumes. And she goes on to talk about how there are mainly three camps, so to speak, in the reenacting world of mainstreamers, campaigners, and hardcores. 
And she says, mainstreamers like to put on a good show. Campaigners like to educate through living history and hardcores have a tendency to play by themselves. Obviously, these are sweeping generalizations. But within these, you do get into hangups, if you will, regarding the legitimacy of women wanting to portray men. It rarely goes the other way. And the accurate portrayal of minorities, mainly African-Americans. Admittedly, I tend to stick with a campaigner crowd, so we will try to have a healthy attitude toward anyone wanting to participate without being too discouraging. During the Civil War, there were limited roles for women such as nurses and vivandiers at the front lines, so usually women tend to go with a civilian portrayal, such as a family following as cooks or laundress in the wagon trail, refugees, camp followers, or an entire side impression of the home front. There's documentation of women disguised as men in the ranks, I believe about 400, but they really had to sell it with short hair and a boyish figure, so it does look odd to see a voluptuous woman with a ponytail marching in the front line of an infantry. I've seen some hardcores really come down on some women for this. In terms of minority portrayals, unfortunately, in my opinion, they're in the minority and understandably so. Not many people of color would want to portray a time in which they were considered less than those around them. I've met two people who portrayed African-Americans in various roles from slave to freedmen very well. Their argument for participating in the hobby is not to glorify the actions of white men in the past, but to educate everyone about the realities of what minorities went through. They admit that there have been awkward moments, but for the most part, their portrayals have not only been enlightening to the spectating public, but to their fellow reenactors. Obviously, there are many things that could be delved into with a topic like this, especially if you explore other time periods, which I'm not familiar with. Thanks for everything you do. And thanks to you, Amy, for writing in. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social medias, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including our podcast sources, so you can follow along with us. There's one place to go, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 